The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, so if you're thinking about pursuing advanced theological education, please give me a call. Also, if you're thinking about underwriting other people pursuing advanced theological education, I would be more than happy to talk to you. Uh, today, we are um, in the midst here at the seminary this week, including today, in our annual Summer Pastors Institute. And this year, we have the pleasure of having Dr. George Scipioni and Dr. Kevin Backus with us for the week to teach on pastoral family counseling. And this afternoon, Dr. Backus is leading the class, so I pulled Dr. Scipioni out of the classroom to talk to us about his new book. Dr. Scipioni, thank you for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. My, my privilege. Dr. Scipioni is um, a 44-year veteran teaching elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He has an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary, and he has a doctorate in biblical counseling from Whitfield Theological Seminary. Is that right? Just to correct you, to be absolutely correct historically, it's a BD from Philadelphia. It was too cheap to pay the $15 to make it a master's. I didn't want to spend the money, so it's still technically a BD. That's humorous, but it's true. Well, there you go. I stand corrected. He is a BD from Westminster, which is the equivalent of an MDiv, at least at that time. He has been involved with the biblical counseling movement for half a century. He was the director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship in San Diego, California, and for the last decade has directed the Biblical Counseling Institute of the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He and his wife Eileen have been married since 1972. They have five children and two grandchildren, and I am quick to point out that Dr. Scipioni, like me, is from the beautiful city of Philadelphia, or the not-so-beautiful city of Philadelphia, depending upon who you talk to. We just call it the the city of brotherly shove. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, We grew up, though decades distant, only maybe four or five miles apart from each other, our two neighborhoods. So today we are talking um, about—it's not really a new book. I said new book before, but it's a second edition of a very helpful book that has been out for a long time. And in the second edition, the title that's been published under is The Battle for the Biblical Family, published by Crown and Covenant Publications, which is the publishing house of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Dr. Scipioni, this is the second edition, and so I suspect mm-hmm. that some of our listeners will be familiar with the first edition published under the title, The Sword and the Shovel, The Battle for the Biblical Family. And though the implements of defense and construction are absent from the title itself, they still made their way onto the cover. And you see this mm-hmm. really attractive image of a, of a sword and a shovel, not a hammer and sickle, but a, sh- a sword and a shovel uh, crossing each other on the front of the book. And you retrieved this image from Nehemiah 4, when Nehemiah directed the men of Israel to build the walls of Jerusalem with one hand while wielding a weapon of defense in the other. How is this image, drawn from Nehemiah 4, relevant to formulating a theology of the family? Uh, I think it's relevant for all of Christian life, because we're in a battle. There's a real devil, as well as a real triune God. Uh, He wants to destroy us. even though he's been defanged and declawed at the cross, he'll still try to gum us to death. And uh, <clears throat> we, we have to do that. We have to fight and build at the same time. We really can't do just one or the other. 
And so uh, that was the original uh, title uh, of the book was the biblical battle for the family or the battle for the biblical family. But the other person who was working with me said, ah, I think it'd be a better with this. And I came up with the image of Nehemiah that would capture uh, the real battle. And for many of us, the family is, is where the real action takes place. There are things that happen in our families that other people are just not going to see outside of pastoral intervention or us revealing it to them. And so it's there that the battle can often rage the fiercest, um, though in the local church that battle rages awful fierce as well. What about the family makes this book significant today? What, what issues does the family as an institution and individual families themselves deal with today that make the formulation of a theology of the family, uh, which you pursue in this book, necessary? Uh, I think uh, two things, the development of history in general and the development of, of God's redemption. Because we're in the New Covenant age, uh, things are clearer. You know, the family... The church and the state, they're there in the Old Testament, uh, but it's much clearer in the New Testament and Puritan theology that comes out of that, that these are the three major institutions. And uh, <clears throat> if you want, I could tell you the history of how the, the book developed to begin with. Uh, uh, someone asked me to write a book on the family because I'd helped them personally. <clears throat> and uh, to be honest, this you know, didn't make it into the series that it was supposed to. I saw more red ink on the page from Marvin Alasky than there's blood in my body. <laughs> but and truth be told, and uh, so it didn't get in, and I said, man, I've just spent five, six years of my life doing this. Uh, I, uh, so I moved it on for my doctoral project and uh, didn't want to waste the time. And then I've used it in the marriage and family course. I think it's crucial because, uh, as I say in the book, and I think when, if you sit down and think about it, it's a no-brainer. God started with the family. The church and the state were kind of in germinal form, as Palmer says, being Palmer says, in, in the family. Uh, so uh, you can see up until the time of Israel, uh, fighting was in the family and uh, worship was in the family. You know, Abraham's a priest and uh, makes altars and, and he goes and defends Lot. And those things get separated out in Israel, and in a sense, they get reunited in Christ in the New Covenant. So, so uh, as I say, look, if you were going to start the world over again, what would you start with? You wouldn't start with a session or a state legislature. You'd start with a family. In fact, that's actually happened in the flood. You know, God says it's so bad, I'm going to wipe it off, start over again. And he starts with Noah and his family. And it's kind of interesting. That's the... That's to come on for Moses even. Hey, they're so bad, I'll wipe them out, start with you, make you the... No, no, please don't do that. The pagans will... And, you know, so you see uh, that the family really is the core of covenantal theology, in a sense, and get to the new covenant, we're the, we're the family of God. It's, it's not just a metaphor, it's the final reality when that family will replace for eternity, you know, what we call the nuclear irregular family. For theological thinkers, whether we're thinking in terms of systematic theology or biblical theology, the temptation is is real to rush ahead to think of Christ as king over the church or, or lord of lords and king of kings over all the nations, and to gloss over the fact that he is very much so the lord of our families. Amen. And that every family under heaven derives its name from who? From Jesus Christ. Right. And so this book is a helpful reminder of that, and there has been a, 
uh, and we'll get to this maybe a little bit later in our podcast episode today, there have been some recent publications emphasizing this, the, the, the importance of developing a theology of the family, not to mention practical helps for conducting family worship and living out a theology of the family. So your process for putting this book together, you get into it in the book, it's pretty straightforward, if I read it right. You began by carefully reading through the Bible and taking notes along the way, listing all of the passages that deal either directly or indirectly with the family as such. And then you exegeted those passages with the training that you received at Westminster. You categorized the texts. You examined extra-biblical Christian materials. And then you also considered academic publications, Christian or not, on the family, drawing from sociology and, and whatever. And then you finally developed biblical solutions to the challenges that you were able to specify along the way, including those posed by academic literature that is explicitly anti-family. What did you discover about God's revealed will for our families through the course of the research for and writing of this book? Well, in a sense, uh, God, who's triune and glorious, Man reflects God. He's the image bearer of God. And in some way, I don't want to push it too far, but the family reflects the character of God. Certainly with Christ and the church, husband and wife, parents, children, you know, those themes run all through the Old and New Covenant. We are the children of God, the children of Israel. He's our father. So, so these are, are not just nice metaphors. These are, in a sense, the very basics of reality. Uh, and me, I'm pretty simplistic, to be honest. It's uh, uh, whatever the Bible says is the bottom line. So we have to systematically study what the Scripture says, uh, of course, with uh, grammatical, historical nuance to the text and redemptive historical, all that stuff. When people ask me, well, how do you uh, preach? Are you redemptive historical? Are you this? I say, I just preach the text. You know, and where the text takes me, and it takes me to the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, that's what we need to preach in the context of the book and why the Holy Spirit gave it. So, so really, it's the old uh, Protestant and, and uh, Puritan idea of what does the Scripture say, what's the doctrinal basis, and now what's the application of this, you know, to, to the reality that we live in. And so it takes a long time. I, to be honest, that's what I do in the basic introduction to biblical counseling. I do a systematic theology of anger, a systematic theology of worry or fear. Try to go through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, uh, correlate everything and try to boil it down into uh, principles and practices, you know, that this is the best that I can come up with that God's revealed to us for this particular issue. What were some of the core principles, either um, for thinking through a theology of the family or living out uh, the Bible's um, reveal, uh, revelation about being a family that, that you discovered along the way of your project? Well, those things that are not all that startling, but, you know, men have to be Christ-like, and, and women have to take joy in uh, building the kingdom. Uh, where that family's going to honor God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. And so uh, it's really the application of the first and second great commandments. Love God with everything you have and your neighbor is yourself. And so we have information on how to be a godly husband, how to be a godly wife, parents. Uh, it may not be everything we want, but it, it's pretty extensive. You have the book of Proverbs, you have a lot of things, 
I'm still waiting for someone to do a doctoral project on God's discipline. How does God discipline his children? Old and new covenant. You know, is that a paradigm for us as our heavenly father? You know, some people say it's all spanking. Others say no spanking. You know, uh, besides the straight passages that teach us the application of being a parent, what do we learn from biblical theology in terms of God's fatherhood? And so uh, there's rich materials that need to be explored, uh, but there, there's all sorts of things in terms of how we can be faithful children and respond to be glory to our, our parents. Uh, it's rich again in Proverbs. Uh, and then historical fill-in is, well, look, the only faithful son is Jesus, so we, we better learn how to be uh, a good son or daughter as an adopted son or daughter in imitation of our, our big brother. So there's all those things that, that can be learned, and I think it's rich for us to consider that. Now, a lot of the stuff may have come out in sermons before, but again, uh, I could not find what I would say is real simply, oh, this is a, this is a uh, good theology of the family. As I often say today, it's another doctoral project, I don't think there's a good counseling anthropology. Who's man? What's wrong? We all know he's the image of God, but... What does that mean? You know, there's a lot of disagreements, but uh, what is image bearer of God and how does that uh, impact our counseling? Um, I play with, you know, everyone's a prophet, priest, and king, and with a small page. Um, what, what does that impact? How does it, that we're worshipers, you know, that we're workers, that we're witnesses, how these work out, uh, that's a framework. Now, all the stuff uh, in the biblical counseling movement vis-a-vis secular counseling or Christian counseling, and even the little Nicene disagreements, you know, within biblical counseling, uh, nobody sat down and written a text saying, this is who man is, this is what's wrong, this is how we fix it. So here's your... So uh, for me, systematic theology really can never be replaced by anything else. In fact, to me, it sounds terrible, but even though it's not my degree, systematic theology is the apex. You know, so, so your grammar, your studies, your redemptive historical analysis of the text, etc., all builds to thus saith the Lord, and this is what I need to do as a result. So uh, that's my methodology. And so we see that reflected in the book where you're taking the biblical material and you're distilling it into those doctrinal truths, which then can be applied mm-hmm. responsibly and, and according to the example that you receive, that we receive in the Bible as well, and you get into that in the book. Now, in chapters 9 and 10 specifically, you compare Western and non-Western ideals or conceptions or traditions of the family. You drew on the work of sociologist uh, Carl C. Zimmerman, right, who lived in the last century, um, and he determined that there was one model in the West that was the strongest model, at least in the West, of family structure. He broke it down. He had three, a trustee model of the family. Domestic and... Atomistic. And atomistic. Can you explain these terms to us, and, and, and what did he land on to say was the strongest Western model of the family? Well, in that stuff and kicking that around, again, I, I want to say very clearly, I'm a presuppositionalist, exegetically basis. The scripture is the only thing that's the absolute truth. It is interesting, though, when non-Christians see things and or opine on things that that are kind of like confirming the truth so you have 
non-Christian sociologists, not Zimmerman, but others, who do not like Christianity whatsoever. And they say, well, you know, the, the kind of family that leads to political freedom and economic growth is the domestic or this family, that's the term that, you know, Zimmerman and others use. And this family system, the first time we see it historically is in Hebrew culture. So I think that's kind of a, a, a smile. You know, I smile at that and go, hey, you hate uh, Christian sexual mores. You hate Christianity. But you have to admit, gee, what's led to economic and political growth and freedom is nothing other than the Judeo-Christian the biblical family, family ethic. Yeah. yeah so, and structure. So, you know, to me, you know, that's, that's why I just threw that in to say, hey, look, uh, here's the academic research. It's obviously not infallible and errant, but it's very interesting what some non-Christians you know, will come up with. What kinds of continuities and discontinuities did you discover between Western ideals or, or ideas and structures of the family and Eastern structures of the family? Well, the Eastern, you know, leans more toward Confucianism uh, and, and other uh, Eastern ideas, and that's where the trustee family, Zimmer and others, that's where literally the husband, wife, and children really exist as trustees for the culture. So if you know anything about Chinese, you know, the number one son has to make offerings to the, the dead ancestors. I tease and say, if you're Chinese, you're responsible for the whole Chinese race. You know, the, the whole ball of wax depends on you. You don't exist for yourself or for God or anything else. You exist for the culture. So uh, that's the Eastern view, and, and it falls very much into the deme- uh, to the uh, to the uh, trustee, you know, you can see in the term trustee, I am, I am, I keep this heritage for the sake of others. Now, that's a, a faint reflection of we do have responsibilities to other people and to God, but it's certainly much removed. Western culture up till now, and I mean right now, 2018, with the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage, etc., what you now have is Western culture moving toward the destruction. And, and Zimmerman pointed out, when you get down to the atomistic, you know, the individual, you have high divorce rates, high abortion, infanticide, and everything falls apart. And of course, from their quasi-conservative, um, but not Christian viewpoint, the culture's ready to fall apart because you can't sustain a culture. Well, just for one, for example, the family importance. We are told by demographers Europe, as we know it, will not exist in 50 years because France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, just go through the whole thing. They are not reproducing enough children per couple to keep the population level uh, even. And so the only thing that keeps them going is influx, you know, through the, uh, through the refugees or whatever. Uh, humanly speaking, as God sends a revival, Europe could fall to... Islam, which it didn't do twice, you know, back, what, in the 700, whatever, you know, Charles the Hammer pushed them back into Africa, and then during the Reformation time, they were at the gates of Vienna, the Turks were coming up, and they were pushed back. Well, now they just might procreate, you know, Europe out of existence. So even these things are seen by non-Christians, the effects of 
no family, high abortion, individuality. And uh, so the balance, though, uh, again, just to summarize, is that, that the, the Judeo-Christian or the biblical view of the family allows for personal freedom but also continuity of the culture without crushing either. Uh, and uh, um, Zimmerman comes up with the date and others that really it was the Reformation at one point and earlier before that, the church holding marriage together after the Roman Empire fell apart. So that an honest historical read is that a Christian view of the family and Christianity kept Western culture from being destroyed. And promoted Western civilization and all the hallmarks of it, including yes. political and economic freedom, the importance of hard work and growth, what Max Weber calls the, the Protestant work, work ethic. Yeah, right. Again, Max Weber, not a Christian sociologist by any stretch of the imagination. It is interesting to see non-Christians affirming uh, the Bible's principles for for family in terms of the the what would it be the, the consequentialist ethic that they employ right. well at least the result is good right. what is interesting is uh, in the trustee model it reminds me it has faint echoes or corollaries to Plato's ideal vision of the Republic where the biological process of procreation literally exists for the propagation of the state and the family is explicitly and and, and legislated out of existence and all yeah. the whole culture is structured around you know families. Uh, not existing, but men and women procreating and the children being offered to the state immediately. Not saying that's going to happen in the United States of America or even Europe in the foreseeable future or anything like that on a mass scale, but just to highlight that there is some continuity between what is a, you know, penultimately Western and what you've described it as Eastern or at least Confucian family structures. But yeah, it's interesting, you know, modern China with its communism is totalitarian, the one child policy. Now they're loosening up on that for different reasons. It's, it's uh, very ironic, but the consistency for the, for the chai comms is that it's for the state. We don't want you to have kids because it's bad for the state. We got too many people. Oh, oops, we better need, you know, we need to have kids. For the state. For the state, yeah. Well, the same thing happened in France in the French Revolution. I put in the book, uh, historians will point out, and also in Russia. Uh, they tried to suppress two things, both the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution, the church and the family. And they learned, they've never come back on the church, but they've learned they need the family because it, they had gangs roaming the streets in Russia they couldn't control them, call them wolf packs because there were so many young kids without parents you know, to oversee them. So um, just like in the sexual revolution, there's certain things you can't mess with. I mean, reality is you still need a sperm and an egg. And the last time I looked, you can only get a sperm from one kind of person and an egg from the other. Whether you're a gay couple or not, the bottom line is that's them's the, them's the realities and certain things just can't be changed. And so if you destroy... The family, as I point out in the book, the family is the is the minor league, if you want to put it that way, for the elder in the church. And I think it doesn't happen this way, but they that do well in the family and the church, they should become the politicians. They should become the political leaders because they have a proven track record in a small group and a little larger group of fidelity they're not going to lay hands on women. They're not going to be me tooing or anything like that. That's the way it ought to work. 
And so the family is really important. You can also see practically inner city churches where you don't have a good family structure. It's very hard to get a stable church. God loves single parents. God loves those people who are downtrodden. But you don't have strong families. You don't even have to be covenantal in your theology to see that you don't have strong families. You can't have a strong church. So it's probably not ideal for most of the leaders of the free world, so to speak, to be um, men and women who don't have children. I, I saw. Did you see this image of uh, each European leader, a, a portrait of each one of them, just a headshot, and it, underneath it said "number of children," and it was goose egg, goose egg, goose egg. Was it goose really? Egg. I, hadn't I mean, seen that. almost all of them. I don't. I didn't fact check it. I admit, but I, I think it's it's probably accurate because they're busy pursuing degrees. Many of them women. Uh, by the time they, they might even be able to consider having children, they're they're leading one of the most important countries on the planet, one of the largest economies in the world, and uh, it's just you can't have room for kids in that context. And so you live vicariously through um, puppet leaders like the royal family or something. Um, so anyway, we can move on from this social commentary, as interesting as it is. We, we touched on some of the challenges internal and external to the family, and particularly we've been focusing on external challenges, so we don't have to, we don't have to um, continue down that rabbit trail. But, and you go into greater depth about both in the book. Now, what strategies are available to us to address these challenges, and particularly the internal ones that, that our families deal with on a day-to-day basis? What strategies do, does God's Word provide for us? What instruction does God give us to meet these challenges? Well, without sounding oversimplistic or pietistic, the first thing is personal sanctification. You just if you, don't, if you don't know the love of Christ and grow in the love of Christ, you can't be like a Christ-like husband. If you don't know submission to Christ as, as a woman, you're not going to be able to submit to a, a sinful guy, uh, you know, parent-child. So there's that personal, okay. Uh, the other thing is that the next level is the church. The church is there to disciple people, to teach fathers how to be fathers, mothers how to be mothers. We should have premarital counseling, not because it's required biblically, but it's wise and prudent. This is a big deal, getting married. They need to get ready. Okay, what about parenting? See, we may do premarital counseling, but there's uh, not a lot of pre-baptism counseling. You know, when you baptize your kids or if it's, you know, a non-patal Baptist, you know, a cradle Baptist, you're dedicating your kids or doing whatever they're going to do. The bottom line is you need preparation for that, and most of us are not taught by our parents how to do it. So the church can step in, not just class-wise, but they can have mentors. In other words, uh, the scripture says it. Older women should teach the younger women to, to love their husbands and children. Apparently, it doesn't come naturally. And some of us might be harder to love than others. And the, the scripture is clear. This is not a older women can or older women could or older women may, but older women should. They sure. ought to yes. mentor younger women. And the same is true for all of the imperatives given to church officers and other men in the church, uh, mature men, to to mentor, guide, and, and, and pass on instruction to young men. Yeah, so uh, to really, uh, uh, long story short, for me, I say biblical counseling is b- biblical discipleship. It's just the basics of not just preaching from the pulpit, but personally sitting down. Paul says in, in Acts 20, I publicly proclaim repentance toward, uh, toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I privately taught you from house to house, and personally, 
I confronted each one night and day with tears. You know, that's Nuthatetu. So the bottom line is a full orb ministry has public proclamation, private teaching, but also personal application. And uh, I don't think, you know, it's my opinion, but I don't think that uh, most congregations, even Reformed congregations, have a lot of good discipleship. It's mostly cognitive input of systematic theology, which is needed, but the personal application. Or in some circles, it's, oh, well, the Holy Spirit will get to you. You know, as long as you get the doctrine right, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get it. Well, you know, soldiers who go out, this is my analogy, soldiers who are going out to war, they need to know that Jesus Christ is going to save them if they get killed. But they also need to be reminded, clean your weapons. This is the protocol. Let's review what you're supposed to do in combat. Okay, and that's the analogy. We need both the mega and the minutia of, of applying. Okay, so we can do that in our context, Sunday school, uh, vacation Bible school, whatever format. Now that we have recordings, everybody's got sermonaudio.com. You can put all kinds of things that are there for people to work through. You have sermons online, listen to the sermon series, now answer these questions, we'll come in and we'll readjust. Oh, here, here's a whole series on how to have family worship. You know, let's run you through that. Okay, here's another series of possible ways of disciplining your children without provoking them or letting them go. Oh, okay, here's uh, another way of, okay, if you're going to make the choice of parents of putting kids in public schools, uh, you know, this is what you have to do to, to screen this. Or if they're even in Christian schools. Or if you're homeschooling, stop being cultic about it. You know, let's, you know, let's realize that you know, there's a broader church. So there's a lot of things that people could do in the church. And uh, the problem is that we, we you know, it's a good thing. We have sermon audio. You can listen to Dr. Piper. You can listen to whoever you like, Vody Bauckham, you know, Ferguson. Zillions of sermons, and they're, most of them are good. Okay? There's no biblical discipleship or biblicalcounseling.com where you see somebody working through these personal issues with somebody who's struggling with pornography or cutting or binging and purging, um, understandably. But those are the kinds of things that we need to work out in the church and give tools to parents uh, and husbands and wives. What is so crucially important and emphasized here at Greenville Seminary in our training, in, in not just in the class on being a Reformed pastor, but most so there, it bleeds into other classes, is the importance of the church being integrated into the family. Now, I want to make sure people heard me right. I used that vocabulary on purpose. I didn't say uh, the family being integrated into the church or something, like family-integrated churches. I said church-integrated families. Yes. And the vision for that here is very simple. It's a time-tested, time-honored, uh, reformed practice of pastoral care, and and it uh, dovetails nicely with the biblical counseling movement, and that is pastoral visitation is the bedrock. Um, men uh, elected and ordained in the church going into households and, and on an annual basis or more than more often checking on a family, sure, helping young fathers lead their family in family worship, actually going there and doing it with him, observing him do it, um, asking the children, uh, with the parents, of course, you know, how, how is your prior life? Mm -hmm. what, what is your practice of reading the Scripture? Speaking to the husband and to the wife, you know, what conflicts are you going through? How, how are things going spiritually, practically? What challenges are you running up against? 
my wife and I have the extreme privilege of being in a church where this is practiced by our elders and our deacons, where we are constantly being checked on, not in a Mm -hmm. weird big brother kind of way, but in a loving, biblical, uh, normal kind of fashion of just, hey, how are you guys doing? And hey, when can I come by and visit with your family That's very good. That's the context. And I always say biblical counseling is just intensive, but it has to fit into that overall but beyond that, there's, there's things now, life is getting more complex. So what do you do with a kid who says, I think I'm gay? Or what do I do with a kid who says, I think I'd like a transgendered, uh, I'd like to be transgendered or whatever? Or how do you train yourself to see that stuff coming so you're not blindsided? Yes. And what do you do with somebody who's binging and purging or somebody who's doing self-harm, you know, cutting? Um, you know, these things, you know, do occur. And... Uh, I think most of us, um, not because the Bible doesn't have the answers, but they're not on the surface. You know, everything for life and godliness is expressly set down or it has to be deduced. Well, you know, it's kind of like in vitro fertilization. What's the biblical position on that? Well, gee, they didn't have it. So I guess the Bible doesn't say anything. No, as Reformed people, we go, eh, wrong answer. Okay, so it'll be the general principles applied. You know, as it says in, in the first chapter on the scriptures in the confession. Uh, so that becomes complicated, and, and that's something that the church can help parents because, you know, they get blindsided with something that they would never expect. And being able to walk through that with somebody who's already walked through it, it's not absolutely necessary, but it is helpful. Some of the greatest themes of scripture have to do with passing on instruction from one generation to the next. We see that woven into the Old Testament in every genre of literature. And I, I'm doing um, a study right now, just on my own, uh, looking for those passages that deal specifically with instruction, and, and, and you know, Solomon asking for wisdom and instruction from the Lord. Obviously, the Proverbs are shot through with that word and, and with seeking instruction from God. But what's amazing to me is, especially in Deuteronomy, especially in the Psalms, that word instruction occurs in the context of passing on instruction in a family from one generation to the next. And this is... Sounds like a doctoral project to me. (laughs) Well, this is precisely the model. This is my point. Good. I got a program for you. (laughs) And and, and my point about... I got to finish my MDiv first, right? Uh, Dr. Piper would... uh, He he would frown on me starting some other degree program in the middle of this. But my point is... um, that your work that you've done is so valuable and so thoroughly biblical, it's shocking that that it hadn't already been done before until you produced a... And I'm, I'm at the point, you know, at my age and, and everything else, of humble enough to say somebody will look at this, and I'm sure they'll disagree with some parts, but if there's somebody who's a better theologian and a better writer, I hope they take up the challenge and say, okay, I can do better than that. Great. Praise God. Take it and run with it. But I, I do think, especially in this day and age, when we're in the battles that we're in, you know, in terms of the United States, if, if we miss helping to strengthen the family, we're, we're going to fail. And there are some good people. Uh, for example, I think James Dobson has done some good things, but, you know, theologically he's weak. You know, he, you know, is. uh, uh his defense of the family is based really more on secular psychology, you know, than the scriptures. 
you know, we don't put them down, but, you know, the bottom line is I don't expect a Nazarene to come up with great theology. Uh, but the point is uh, uh, the family really needs to be protected. And I, I think sometimes we, we don't think that way. It's, it, it's most clearly envisioned in that, that all too often employed by, by reform people, all too often employed argument for sending children into public schools. And I'm not one to say sending your kid to a public school is inherently sinful. I, I would say it's inadvisable at best. But you know, I can imagine some scenarios where that is your only real viable option. But certainly you should never make the argument that it's appropriate by saying, oh, my children are going to be salt and light in that public school as first graders. That, that is so confounding to sure. me. Sure, sure. Uh, for you to expect that your first grader can discern between a nice homosexual, you know, and a uh, spit and polish, you know, classic person, they don't have the discernment, you know, uh, and God forbids us, I think, in Deuteronomy to give our children over to pagans for raising. Now, people say, oh, well, what about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, those guys had their life together. So did Joseph before he got, you know, captured. But they didn't have a choice of being sold into slavery or being taken off to Babylon U. I'm pretty sure that they would have said, yeah, no, thank you. Don't want to go there. And even when, even when they did, they still put up sure. a strong resistance sure. to being assimilated into the pagan culture. They wouldn't eat sure. uh, the diet that was being forced upon them, and, and they sought an exemption from the rule, and they were granted it in God's grace. I think they were a little older than five or six. Yeah, like I think you're seven. right about that, too. <laughs> Though Daniel did live a long time after that. So. You have nine appendices in the back of the book, and we're getting to the point on the interview, we're wrapping it up, talking about resources that are available to folks. These appendices are ancillary resources to the body of the book. Um, what, what are some of the high points in those appendices that readers could expect to get, the, the value add when they purchase a book themselves and read you it? Know, I think uh, it may not be perfect, but just even the first appendix, which is, uh, all the verses that apply to the family. It's pretty long. Some are major. Some obviously are just mentioning peripherally, but there's a resource there. I've had some people tell me that's the most useful part of the book is in terms of just having a, a list of passages that relate to the family. Uh, for those that want to study, you know, uh, uh, the uh, effects of theology, uh, you know, you can learn about uh, how people uh, become evangelical feminists and move on to paganism and how the family and theology are tied together. Um, there's just a whole bunch of things there. They're in the appendices because they're a little more technical and, you know, it's not the main point, but some of the research is there. And, and it might help somebody who is, let's say, uh, studying sociology or psychology, you know, to kind of think through uh, what am I doing when I'm going into this, this field or cultural anthropology? Because the social sciences are really not sciences. They're really uh, thinly veiled philosophies. And there's some observational accuracy, but it's primarily, um, you know, those effects. Out ideologies working themselves sure. out. Sure. People who want to... Uh, church growth is is driven by sociology, the church growth movement. Uh, cultural anthropology drives the insider movement in terms of you can stay in the mosque or in the Hindu temple and still be a believer, all that nonsense. 
that stuff as well as the counseling stuff comes straight out of the social sciences, which, you know, the submergent church, I call it. Rather than emergent, <laughs> submergent yeah. church. Yeah, they're, they're going under, really. Uh, really fits cultic. What's a cult? Has the Bible, some sort of tradition next to the Bible, and ongoing revelation. Well, we have that in evangelical circles today. Have the Bible, sort of. Uh, the social sciences as the as the tradition, uh, and then charismatic, you know, new revelations, you know, that tell me I should support Joel Olstein or somebody else, you know. Uh, so really, uh, Christianity today is cultic, most of it, than reformed or even you know, evangelicals are, are really basically dying because they're like Roman Catholics. They have the Bible tradition and papal bull. So, or the Mormons. So we're living in an age. In fact, I'm giving a, I gave a lecture today on the cult of gay Christianity, you know, where there are people who say, oh, I believe you got to be born again. I believe Jesus is the only way, but you know, you can be gay and a Christian at the same time. I mean, it's, it's so basic here on this point, and this is timely because of the conference that's taking place this weekend in St. Louis, hosted by, of all things, a PCA church in St. Louis, which is a um, a shame to our denomination, uh, though it's being put on by a different egalitarian group, but um, promoting LGBTQ flourishing in the church. And I'm all for promoting the, the, the well-being of people that are suffering from sin, and I believe that the well-being of people suffering from sin is best achieved through liberation from that sin, and the, the, the divestment of that identity from their Christian identity. But instead, what we're seeing is confusion in the church on this matter, and wanting to wed together a sinful identity with a Christian identity, when all you do then is kill your Christian identity. So it's true, this is a challenge to us, and, and really where it comes home to roost is in the family. And so this work is valuable for combating all kinds of error in the church. What other resources would you direct families to for help in the battle for the biblical family? First of all, a good, solid, reformed church. Absolutely essential. A family was never meant to stand alone. And beyond that, I would have to say, and even though it's a mixed bag, I'm not trying to put anyone down, but the group that we started, NANC, years ago, it's now ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, it's only going to be as good as the theology of the person in it. But everyone believes in errancy but you're going to have people that are not Reformed, so it may be mixed. But there's always uh, the connection of finding a Reformed church somewhere where the person in trouble is and or a ACBC certified uh, counselor or somebody who's gone through Greenville or you know some of the other Reformed seminaries that can be trusted theologically, although a good seminary doesn't necessarily guarantee a good pastor. It's true, and you should never hold a seminary um, solely accountable for the eccentricities right. of their graduates. Sure. Paul Jewett, who led the feminist you know, movement in evangelicalism, one of the big guys who was at Fuller, was a Westminster Philadelphia graduate. So, I mean, that's real embarrassing for some of us who went to Westminster, but the bottom line is one of the pastor who preceded me in my first church uh, when we were teasing at one point, saying, hey, you know, uh, Percy Crawford over there across the river is an Arminian. He got, you didn't help him. He said, look, he went to Westminster. Van Til couldn't turn him into a Calvinist. <laughs> Don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah, you're right. The seminar, uh, seminary reminds me of Mr. Musabini. I don't know if you remember Mr. Musabini, the Arab-Italian professional trainer that Harold Abrams had in, you know, the, the movie uh, Chariots of Fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Mr. Musabini, Mr. Musabini you know, uh, Harold Abrams says, I can't do this without you. And he says, well, Mr. Abrams, we have a saying in this business. You can't put in what God's left out. <laughs> if you have it, I'll train it. So the bottom line is seminary can, can't regenerate people, can't sanctify them. No, you can be regenerated in seminary, yes. right, Dr. Scipione? Yes, you can. No, I was. Uh, I was raised from the dead in one of them. So, uh, uh, But the bottom line is you need a good church, and, and you need people who are really used to walking through these problems and not going to be scared. What you don't want is just have a, someone go, you did what? You know, you're involved in that. You know, well, then right away the person goes, gee, they, they don't have any experience. They're, they're shocked out of their gourd, and I, I'm not going to be able to go to them. So um, that's what I would say, a good, solid, reformed church and connecting with people who are used to working biblically with people who are in trouble. And we mentioned this a couple times already. Family worship is such a, a, a huge a huge component of a reformed family piety, mm-hmm. uh, as I would put in reformed uh, family reformed spirituality, I guess. And a couple resources I would just recommend in terms of other books, in addition to The Battle for the Biblical Family by George Scipione, published by Crown and Covenant Publications, I would also recommend Joel Beakey's Little Mm -hmm. Family Worship Bible Guide, um, published by Reformation Heritage Books. We use that in my my household, going through Hebrews right now. Once we're done in Hebrews, we're going to move into Luke, and I'm going to use a new publication by Pastor Jeff Gleason, published by Christian Mentor, and that's a family worship uh, guide through Luke. So I would recommend both of those resources to you, especially if if you're looking for something to help you get into family worship and, and all of that. There are good lectures by um, Dr. Shaw on family worship. Our, our whole conference two years ago, our Spring Theology Conference, was on, was on, fam- on the family, mm-hmm. and uh, we had sermons and lectures delivered by the likes of Joel Beakey, Joseph Piper, Ian Hamilton, Kevin Backus, um, all of them, and, and, and more besides, and all of them excellent, dealing mm-hmm. with specific issues uh, in terms of the theology of a biblical family, but also practical outworks, outworkings of, of that. I tell people, look, in counseling, if you can read, it's a little archaic, but just pick up morning and evening by Spurgeon, you know, and read the scripture, read the thing, and pray with your family. Anybody could do that. So, I mean, get started easy. You can always cheat, get Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can, there's helps there that people can grab, and you've mentioned two of the newer ones. And if you have a hard time getting your kids, this is Zach's advice, if you have a hard time getting your kids excited about family worship, we've been doing this now for a couple of years, and my kids still kind of gripe when I say, okay, time to sit down for family worship. Uh, recently I said, hey, who wants to sing a hymn together? And they all go crazy for it. They're excited to do that. Or you can sing, sing a song, even if you can't sing, you can always turn it on uh, a computer. You have accompaniment wherever you are nowadays. Um, the kids sit down, and then you kind of bait and switch them, and you do a little devote. Oh, let's pray first, and, and let's read some scripture first. Okay. And, uh, and now it's not so much, oh, this onerous exercise of family worship for your young kids, but it's singing a hymn and praying together. That's great. Of course, sometimes if they're like my kids, they'll change from, ah, oh, do we have to have it as, okay, 
let's get it over with because they know you are not going to not have family worship. Exactly. Uh, we could go on on that. I could tell you some humorous things <laughs> which break up family worship and when the kids answer questions. But anyway. <laughs> well, Dr. Scipione, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a pleasure. And again, I commend our listeners to the second edition of his very valuable book published under the title The Battle for the Biblical Family from Crown and Covenant Publications, the publishing wing of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. We are thankful for you, Dr. Scipione, and your involvement here at Greenville Seminary, even as you continue to serve Christ's Church in many venues and contexts. Thank you. It's my privilege. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www dot gpts dot edu